This is Africa Emerging Podcast with your host, Tutu Adamola. We're set to showcase the unique contributions of influential Africans living in the developed economies who, against all odds, have made indelible marks in their respective professions around the world. Join me as we shape this new narrative. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode one of the Africa Emerging podcast. My guest on the show today is Tunji Akintokom. He is currently the senior vice president at NSC Global. Previously, he worked at Cisco for over 18 years, where he held his last position as director, commercial and partners organization Africa. He sits on the board of several companies and charities. He recently received an MBE from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II here in the United Kingdom. This part of the show, he shared story about growing up in London, the light bulb moment when he decided he will study a STEM subject. He gave an in-depth insight about the numerous charity work he is involved in, which includes the likes of Your Future, Your Ambition, Aspire to Achieve, the Elisha Charitable Trust, amongst many others. We talked about making career choices, rising through his career. We talked about his passion on inclusion and diversity in the workplace. It was such an interesting conversation. A lot was covered. I was really inspired about his achievements and how he has been giving back to the community. I hope you enjoyed this conversation like I did. Good morning, Mr. Tunji Akintokong, and thank you for joining on um, the interview this morning for Africa Emergency. Pleasure to have you here. You're welcome, Tutu. Okay. Can we get to know you, please? Yeah, sure. Um, what can I tell you? I guess um, in terms of, uh, I guess, my background, I'm uh, of Nigerian descent, as you can probably tell from my uh, my name, uh, but probably not so much from my accent. Um I was born and bred and raised in London predominantly. Um, I probably spent uh, a little bit of my early life uh, here in London, uh, but also spent some time uh, fostered as well as a, as a, as a young child. So uh, I've had a, a good, rich upbringing. Uh, my parents came here in the very late uh, 50s, early 60s. Um, my father was um, a lawyer and uh, my mum was a textiles engineer. Wow, wow, wow. And, um, and I was going to say, from a, uh, I guess, an education perspective, I schooled here in London, um, and uh, I have uh, done a degree in microelectronics and a master's degree in uh, software engineering. And um, postgraduate, I've uh, also had the, uh, the pleasure and uh, the luxury of being able to study in the US at both Stanford and uh, Wharton Business Schools to increase my education. I'm very much a big believer in uh, life learning, that you never stop learning. So, uh, Absolutely, so, I agree. Um, my current role, and I've had um, a very good uh, career so far, all in technology, and uh, that's been my passion. And uh, I'm currently uh, Senior Vice President of a global company called NSC, and we are a managed and professional services organization operating out of 26 countries and uh, have presence in over 100. And uh, we essentially provide uh, skilled 
people and technology solutions to global clients. And uh, I currently head up the sales and uh, marketing operations for our businesses in the UK um, and uh, also Spain, Italy, France, the Netherlands, the Nordics, uh, and also uh, the Benelux regions, um, including also the Baltic. Wow, that's, that's a lot. It's quite a varied role, and I have a couple of support teams <clears throat> based in both uh, India and also in Cape Town in South Africa. Mm. So uh, spend time obviously growing and building my teams, but also seeing our customers in all those relevant uh, countries or those with a global footprint. Uh, previous to joining NSC, um, I spent uh, 18 years uh, with the tech giant Cisco, and wow, uh, I wow. helped uh, leadership roles there over a, a very good career there, um, including leading Africa, um, which was one of my last roles before I left there last year, um, which uh, was a, a real delight to be able to do. But I've also managed um, our Russian and Middle East operations um, in terms of certain customer segments and uh, also uh, looked after operations in Europe. Wow, wow. That's, um, that's a background. Yeah, quite, quite, quite an impressive CV. I think um, when I was going through um, um, some of your CV and um, background through LinkedIn, I was absolutely so impressed. I said, my God, that is a lot. That is a lot, lot of exposure. So what actually um, inspired you or prompted you to, I know you did say um, you have a, a, a flair for technology. What actually inspired mm. you to study MS's software engineering? Um, it's, it's a great question, Tutu. And for me, I was very fortunate. And um, it's something that I've taken on um, later in my life, uh, in my career, is that when I was at school, uh, when I was 11 years old, um, my school uh, had arranged for a career talk for um, certain different uh, professionals to come in and talk about their careers. And uh, we had an engineer that came in from IBM um, mm-hmm. at the time. And yeah. uh, I'm going to probably age myself here, but this was before the IBM PC had come out. Yeah. And uh, this um, engineer was showing us how the technology was changing. Yeah. That <clears throat> computing power that was typically taking anywhere between uh, physically space of up to a whole room um, to do and compute was going to be reduced to computing uh, the size of uh, merely a desktop size and I was fascinated by this and you know wanted to know more um, and what computers could do and uh, I asked the engineer afterwards what he studied how he became an engineer and um, I diligently followed that I chose predominantly sciences uh, as my options before I did my uh, GCSEs yeah. um, or as they were in my day and mm-hmm. um, followed their roots and it was predominantly physics and mathematics um, and then I, you know, went to university to study those subjects with a, an absolute um, passion to wow. be able to be an engineer. So for me, it was just that one intervention mm-hmm. that I had that got me really inspired. And um, ironically, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, yeah. it was certainly the inspiration around some of the social enterprises that I have um, founded and run since because it is around the fact that uh, sometimes it only needs one intervention or one stroke of inspiration from somebody as a role exactly, model. Exactly, exactly. And into that particular profession. And I think that's so important at an early age for young people because I believe that 
we're very much a product of our environment and what you're exposed to as a young child um, is really important in respect to being able to inspire and uh, I guess influence the types of careers that people could have. So if you have more, in our case, more black role models in lots of different professions who are able to give their time to share how they've got into their industries, then it gives those young people a much broader um, platform of different careers to consider and and then not necessarily block them or say, well, I don't see many people of colour in this particular area, so maybe it's not for me. So I think it's very important that... Uh, that we play it forward by doing that. Absolutely. And which is um, one of the key reasons why I've decided to launch the Africa Emerging Community. Because uh, like in my role in financial services, where I do find myself, sometimes I go to some certain meetings or I'm in some certain programs delivering change. And I look around the meeting, you know, and I can barely see one or two more other people that exactly look like me and what I've, what I've found out is it's not that you don't have people who have interest to go into such things it's just that they've not been probably opportune to get the right inspiration to know the choices available for them absolutely correct and I think that's so important to which is why certainly here in the UK you know it's it's paramount that um you know, we're able to uh, provide our young people coming through with all of the options available to them um, in that any career or any um, field of industry is um, available to them and that there are people that look like them that are doing those roles. So whether it's a, a neuroscientist or a lawyer or a uh, actuary within a, a pensions function, we try to ensure through some of the initiatives that I have uh, got involved in um, to that, that those people that are doing those roles spend some of their time explaining that to people um, that look like them and from their background so that they can be inspired and then consider that as something to do. And probably more importantly, to, to, to give those people the opportunities to know what path they take and what are the things that are available for them. Because often people shy away from certain um, industries or certain roles because they don't know how to get into it, how to get internships or apprenticeships or work experience. Um, and I think those things are all important to be able to uh, ensure that our young people of colour here in the UK are given every opportunity um, to pursue whichever career they'd like to do. Absolutely, I do agree. Absolutely, yeah. So um, obviously, with your um, your education in um, software engineering, you are now um, you've now got vast experience in in sales via product marketing, and not just yeah. in a small organisation, but this is a multi million pound industry. How? Yeah. What was that aha moment? What was that? you know that striking moment that made you choose you know that career path combining sales with you know um software engineering your education mm. <laughs> i get asked this question a lot and um you know often in most technology companies you know the the, the divisions uh, are kind of almost separate in that you'll have an engineering division that you know innovates and produce great products um, and then you have uh, a sales and a marketing function whose role is to market and sell those um, that technology or those solutions to customers that want it. And many engineers um, and those that listen that are will often become 
maybe a little bit frustrated, and I think I probably did in that you're often undervalued or not visible within the business uh, as much as maybe the, the the front office or the people that are seeing the customers. So you're in the background innovating, creating really great technology, but you don't often, as an engineer, see the end customer that really benefits from that or necessarily get the feedback. And, and, and I guess when I was quite early in my career as a young engineer, I became more vociferous about that in that I felt that we were being undervalued. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the aha moment was when I was uh, I was being taken out by one of the sales um, account managers at the time to go and see a customer. And um, I just said that, you know, we're doing all the real work here because the customer wants to get the trust from us around the technology. And um, that we don't get paid as much as you or valued as much. <laughs> and uh, yeah. this account manager just said, you're always complaining to me. And uh, he, he kind of <laughs> said to me, you know, put up or shut up. And I kind of said, well, I could do your job. And he said, well, if you can, then why don't you come over and do it? And that was a challenge then that, wow. you know, you're eating. Pride as an African man comes in, and you're thinking, well, I'll my can. So um, I literally did. I um, I was a bit nervous because I had the comfort of a salary that was pretty much um, predictable. And I was then going to be moving into an environment where it was less predictable as it is yeah, in most yeah. sales, that you have some good months and some bad months. But um, I was very fortunate the organization I worked for um, could see that I had sales potential. Um, and they took me on a transition route, not just dumping me into sales, but um, I went via product marketing, which was like a halfway house at first. And then over time, they made the full transition to a sales function um, as a sales uh, account manager uh, managing um, our clients. Now, the beauty of that with an engineering background is that your customers really then realize that you're a consultative, more conscientious seller because you understand the technology that you're articulating uh, to them. Yeah, absolutely. So I was extremely successful uh, as a salesperson um, because I was very honest with our customers. I never oversold, um, and uh, I always ensured that there was a duty of care and diligence that that went in place to ensure that um, whatever I sold, it worked, and um, you know there was an accountability that I had towards them. So there was a duty of care to ensure the technology I was selling worked. And I think for me, I enjoyed a very successful and still do a very successful career selling, um, albeit now, um, as time has gone on, I've moved up the, um, the I guess, the, 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 the chain in terms of more towards leadership um, over the last 15 or 20 years. And um, that's been an area where I've, you know, become more educated. I've assumed and embraced the fact that I can be a leader in a business. And uh, I fine-tune my skills um, in that area. But I would say I still keep a keen eye on the technology. I, I probably am a, a not a good engineer as I was 20, 25 years ago, but I still have a deep understanding and appreciation and a thirst for understanding all the new technologies that are coming through because I don't think that element in your DNA goes away because you become a salesperson. You still have a a, a thirst and a a quest to understand how technology works and more importantly, how it can benefit society. Exactly, exactly. But like you've you've rightly pointed out, you having that background is kind of giving you that leverage and you're a subject matter expert basically so you're an SME in that in that industry and it's it's easier for you to sell because basically you can explain what the technology behind that solution is to your potential customers as well 
You can, and, and, you're, and you're doing it in a way that's not just technically, um, you know, advanced for your customer to understand. And I think if there's a, a skill that I feel that I've picked up over the years is being able to take very complex technology in itself and be able to articulate that in a very simple and effective way to our customers so that they don't need to understand the deep runnings or understandings of how that technology works but they really understand what benefits it brings to their business. And I think that's what um, having a technical and an engineering background has given me is that I'm able to understand the very complex areas of whether it's the Internet of Things or software automation or cloud and be able to then put that into much more business talk for our customers so they can see where the benefits are. And I think that uh, that's probably, for me, one of the areas that – I kind of thrive in and I enjoy and I think my, my customers appreciate as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So obviously, we, um, before um, the current role you are now, you worked as, um, at Cisco for 18 years, like we, um, we discussed earlier on um, in the interview today. So how was that moment? Because I know in Cisco, you went from being a channel manager up to, you know, having the opportunity to be a director. So how was that, you know, the, the, the progression through that? What were the kind of challenges, you know, those defining moments that helped you in progressing through the ranks? Mm. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting. And I think it, it's probably a, a, a good lesson, uh, certainly for your, your, um, your younger audience that will be listening to this is that when you look at people's LinkedIn profiles and you look at their careers, often it's very chronological and it's always going up. You know, you'll say you were an account manager, then you were a director or then you're a VP or whatever, but people tend to show progression. Um, But the reality of it is, is that often, you know, careers can, um, in terms of positions but not experience, can also um, appear to move sideways or sometimes they can go back. And probably what isn't very clear, you know, in your career is that you may have a, assume a title, but, you know, sometimes to learn something new and to grow, you need to move sideways in your, um, in your career, or you sometimes have to um, take a role that's lesser because you don't have the experience there, but it may be a lesser grade, but yeah, it means I that agree. you learn. Yeah, so you learn in that role and then you then progress and take the experience you have. And in most cases, I've always been a great believer that, you know, the strength of a person and we talked about subject matter experts, but it's also around the broadness of being able to lead across different areas of a business. Because if you're going to become a general manager or a leader in the future and you only have subject matter expert um, focus in sales, then you won't be able to manage a technical organization, a marketing organization, a HR department, et cetera, if you don't have that broader knowledge. And sometimes you have to move sideways in your role. And then the reason why I say that is that when I joined Cisco, I was joining from an organization where I was effectively the head of our, our entire division. I had um, probably about 50 staff working for me, um, and it was a smaller organization, but my position was very senior. And when I joined Cisco, I joined as an account manager, which is the beginning grade of sales within uh, Cisco. Although I had a very deep um, understanding, knowledge, and education in the area, I knew that Cisco was the right organization and that if I needed to get into the right organization, it meant that I was probably not realistically going to be able to go in at the same level that I 
I had enjoyed in my previous role, albeit it was a smaller company. So I made that conscious decision to um, to target Cisco because I could see it was up and coming. And I was patient because um, if you look at my um, my resume, it says I joined the organization in 1999. What you don't see is that the first offer I had from Cisco mm. was actually in 1996 wow. as an engineer. Um, but I wasn't successful in taking that role because I was joining from a company that was a Cisco customer. And Cisco's ethics at that time were that they would not hire people from their customers because it was a, you know effectively impacting their ecosystem. I was more valuable to Cisco in the company I worked for rather than working for them. So I had to persevere and be patient. And, and when I joined, um, a lot of people in Cisco knew me. And they were asking me questions. You were very senior in your role. Why would you come and take a more junior role here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I, I said, it's about learning. It's about learning about the business. I appreciate that, you know, I'm coming from a different environment. It was a smaller company. Um, Cisco's a very big company at that time. It was getting bigger. And, and I wanted to have a career that I felt I could learn. And, um, and that's what I did. And I started. I proved myself in my role. I very quickly and moved from being a an account manager to being a sales manager um, within Cisco, looking after a region. And I think the, the the truth of the matter is is that I think people often ask me, saying, "Wow, you were at Cisco for a long time. That's a long time to be with a a company." And I said, "Yeah, but I had about seven different roles. And if you then average that out over a period of time, it means on average you're moving roles maybe every two to two and a half exactly. years." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can find satisfaction in your career in one company, providing that you're taking new opportunities. Absolutely. And again, you know, if you look at that, some of my roles were more junior and more senior. There were sideways moves within Cisco that I had. And in some cases, um, you know, the roles were probably from a grade perspective less um, because I went down a grade to take a new opportunity. And one of the examples of that was when I was working in the UK and I took a role in the consumer division, we acquired a company and the grade was less than the one I was on. But I knew it was an area um, in consumer and in connected homes that I knew nothing about. And I respected the fact for me to learn meant that I would have to go down a grade um, to get in. And I did that. But I rapidly then proved myself and then moved back up. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I'm quite a good believer. I think in this day and age, people believe that, well, no, you should always be going up and to the right. But I actually believe that gaining experience in adjacent um, uh, sectors or, or divisions within an organization and taking sideways moves are often also effective to then move you up uh, to a much stronger position in the future because you've got a much broader knowledge. And um, you know, I enjoyed uh, my 18 uh, plus years at Cisco. I had uh, the opportunity to lead and manage teams in the Middle East, in Russia, in Africa, in wow. Europe, wow. across lots of different customer segments as well. And, um, you know, built a very, very strong network globally doing that. Yeah. So, so how, how large was the team um, you, well, at the peak of your career at Cisco, how large was your team before um, you left? Um, the team I was running in Africa, I was responsible for a, a business which was uh, a few hundred million dollars. Um, I had teams in uh, Egypt, uh, Morocco, Senegal, Nigeria, South Africa, and um, Kenya. And, uh, you know, they, they were quite big teams. We were responsible for a very large customer segment within Africa. 
Wow. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a big team. I spent probably half my uh, month um, on the continent visiting my teams and my customers um, in Africa. I chose to not relocate my family to Africa. Um, I left my um, my family in the UK because my my, my children were schooling and it was going to be a bit disruptive. Um, so I chose to you know with a very supportive wife um, to travel um, for probably two weeks of every month. Um, to make sure I was present on the ground, seeing my customers, but also supporting my teams. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. <clears throat> it also gave me, as on a personal level, a, an opportunity to reconnect with my family in Nigeria because having an office in Lagos meant that, um, on a personal note, I was able to um, connect back with uh, my uncles and aunties um, who had never never left Nigeria, so I'd never seen them, um, in, yeah. in some cases, um, in excess of uh, 40 years. Wow. So for wow. me, it was fantastic to be able to get the opportunity in my normal day job through my experience to be able to, to reconnect with my, um, with my family. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that's a good one. Yeah. So obviously, after, you know, 18 plus years in um, Cisco, you then moved currently to your current role in um, NSC Global. So how big yeah. was that was the team you currently manage? What you currently do in um, NSC Global? Is it as big as what it was when, when you were in Cisco? No, in terms of the actual team, and I think it goes back to the previous point, is that you take opportunities based on the experience and how you grow as an individual. Yeah. And um, it would be very easy for me to leave Cisco and go and work for another large, you know, global tech company. And, and believe me, I had many offers. And um, that would have been what most people would have expected me to naturally do. But I took the opportunity to look at an organization that's privately held, um, you know, it's growing extremely fast. Um, and, uh, you know, the opportunity is, is to be able to make a difference. And one of the things I haven't done in my career was to work for probably a smaller company with probably a larger remit uh, in terms of responsibility for different teams, not just um, the sales teams and the, and the technical teams sometimes. So in my, my current role, I have, a, a, I would say it's more of a my, my actual title is a senior vice president um, for uh, for those regions I mentioned earlier. But, you know, you have full um, P&L responsibility. You know, you've got all of the functions. Um, you've got all of the issues that you have to deal with, whether it's employment law, whether it's marketing, whether it's offices. Um, so I think from that perspective, what I'm getting from the role is that I've got an opportunity to grow a company that's very, you know, is growing quite fast and probably needs the structure and the stability to scale well, uh, effectively, you know, and um, it's allowing me to use probably a lot of skills um, that I have and have learned and grown over the years more effectively. You know, it's like anything, you mm -hmm. can get to be in a role and do it effectively, but you may have a lot of other capability that doesn't necessarily get used. And exactly. I think that mm -hmm. in this particular role here, I'm exercising a lot of muscles um, mentally um, that I probably hadn't had to use at Cisco because, you know, it was a different infrastructure and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a different way of working. So I'm really enjoying it. It's challenging. It's growing quickly. You have to make decisions, um, uh, you know, a lot more quickly Peter. than I probably had to do in my previous role. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm thriving. You know, I'm learning new things. I'm um, looking at different ways of doing business. And, um, you know, it's uh, a new challenge and a new uh, opportunity to grow, 
um, working um, in a senior position. I, I report um, to the CEO of the company directly. Yeah. Um, obviously, a large company like Cisco, you have a senior position, but you may mm. still have, in my case, I think there were probably from memory five or six steps between me and the CEO um, in Cisco, but here you're reporting directly. directly. So your accountability is uh, is much higher and um you know you you have more of an opportunity to make a difference and i think that the the role i've been brought in to do um i'm executing against um i'd say that i'm probably halfway through my overall plan with the company but it's going in the right way and uh you know it's uh, a great environment to, to work in wow wow that's that's quite in- inspiring yeah that's quite inspiring so um aside your uh, your current role with um nsc global i know you run other stuff you do other um charity um you currently uh, are the founder of um your future your ambition can you talk us through um why you started this um initiative and what was the vision behind it yeah sure I think with most people in life, and um, <clears throat> I think that uh, if you ask anybody, they'll have a day job that they do. And then if you ask them, you know, well, what, what are you really passionate about? Um, sometimes it's your job and that's your life and that's what you like doing. But in most, pa- most people you ask, they'll have other interests and um, things that they like to do. And um, I think like many people that are quite senior in their positions over the years, um, you start to reflect on life generally in terms of what you're doing. I've probably mentored uh, and sponsored probably people for the best part of 20, 25 years, mm-hmm. probably unconsciously first, and then more consciously maybe over the last 15 years where it's become a lot more structured. And um, one of the things for me that I became very passionate about early was around mentoring and uh, ensuring that the opportunity I had to do science and technology, although it was very almost by chance, I wanted to put a more systemic way of ensuring that people that wanted to look at careers, especially in science and technology, and the reason for that in this country, as you probably noted too, is that you know we have a shortage of um, people going into STEM-based careers, and that's science, technology, engineering, and maths, especially with, um, with young uh, girls as well studying sciences. It drops off quite significantly. Yeah. And what we're seeing in the economy is that we're not innovating as fast as other countries because we don't have as many people in science and technology when you look at uh, companies, certainly in the Far East and in other parts of Europe. So for me, it was a case of saying, look, I'm passionate about getting more people to study um, you know, science and technology, whether it's coding. But when you look at this world we're living, it's becoming ever increasingly digitized. Yeah. Um, you know, the internet has changed everything. You know, companies business models are changing and we need to ensure that we've got people that are able to capture that opportunity and to innovate. And for me, it was a case of saying, look, we have a, uh, we have a real challenge in this country in that, you know, on average, you wouldn't believe this, but every 90 days, there's something like 85,000 jobs that are generated in the IT and IT related industry within the UK. And yet only 47% 47% of those jobs get filled. So wow. there are 50% of the jobs, which is, you know, circa 40, 50,000 jobs that don't get filled because people can't find the right talent or the right people to do those roles. Wow. So it felt, well, look, there's an obligation here to say you've got 
diverse talent and people that are not necessarily considering careers in tech, and we've seen that drop off, and we have a problem in the country. How can we help to get more people, especially people from diverse backgrounds, to study science early? And that's diversity, whether it's more women, whether it's more people of color, whether it's people that are, you know, that have neurodiverse um, uh, kind of... uh, uh, qualities that you can bring to mind, whether it's autism or, or other mm-hmm. things. It's the case of getting them into these industries early by exposing them, um, ensuring they're connected with companies uh, that have these roles or have um, different people doing them, and ensuring that, hey, look, there are people like me that do this. This is something I could do. Exactly. Uh, and that, over the years, went around and around in my head. And I was thinking, what's the best way to do that? Because I can't scale to mentor lots of people. I can't keep trying to connect people together to say, well, I know somebody that works in the law firm who's a a black female, so let me try and connect this woman or this young girl that's thinking of doing something in law and get them to talk. I was looking for a more scalable platform, and um, I was quite fortunate about seven seven or so years ago that um, when I worked at Cisco that, um, as you know, in this country in 2012, we hosted the, um, the Olympics, and um, Cisco built an amazing technology center in the Olympic Park, and um, it was to showcase everything that we do for our customers. But the actual premise itself was also available to use for events. And um, it was one of those light bulb moments where I thought, wow, what if I could get this room filled up, this whole complex filled up with companies in science and tech, and then get lots of young people in to see what's really available. And, um, you know, that idea just grew. I then socialized Mm. people I knew. And, you know, before I knew it, people got behind it and said, well, yes, if you can run this program, um, we'll be interested. And um, that was how Your Future, Your Ambition was born. Um, and we managed to run an event in 2012 um, in the Olympic Park. We had around 300, 350 students came. We had about 11 companies um, that were exhibiting. And what we did was very clever in that we had uh, organizations bring their diverse talent to represent them at these companies. So whether it was a Barclays or an EY or an EDF Energy, who were some of our original sponsors, they would bring, you know, black nuclear scientists or, you know, female black bankers. So when they were on the stands talking about the the diverse talent that we were attracting was seeing people that looked like them doing these jobs. And that grew. And um, I think we just looked at it as then as just being a one-off event. And I would never forget at the time that the, um, one of our sponsors was uh, National Grid. Yeah. And uh, their, their um, CEO at the time, uh, Steve Holliday, did a keynote speech for us. And I remember him saying, well, you know, the Olympics here where you are is all about legacy. And, you know, if you think that you can just run this event once and um, leave it and pat yourselves on the back, you're hugely mistaken. You need now need to think about how you sustain this and grow it so and that we get more. Ongoing. And um, the, the big challenge we had, actually, is that the Olympics was one year, and when they ended, the facility that Cisco built that we used was being dismantled for the next yeah. Olympics. Mm. And um, we had to find a new home, and then we kind of then needed to test the appetite of the companies that had taken part. And um, they were still really enthused and uh, <clears throat> were interested in doing it again. And, um, you know, as they say, the rest is history. We moved um, premises, and we were lucky. Um, people often ask me, why did we end up at the time 
um, with the uh, at the Arsenal um, Emirates Stadium, and yeah. uh, people that know me know that I'm an Arsenal fan. <laughs> well, actually, it's not because I went there; it's because it was a large venue in London, and um, they, when I went to see them and talk about what we wanted to do, they were very supportive, and they were they wanted to get behind it through the Arsenal Foundation. So, you know, they became involved. We moved premises to the Emirates, and um, you know, the event has grown and grown, wow. and. Um, you know, it's going to be running actually um, next month uh, next in October um, in the Emirates Stadium where it is. Um, and I think the lesson here is that, you know, I'm no longer involved with your future ambition because I, you know, I worked on it, founded it, grown it. But I think, again, it's about the fact that as a leader, you should always build a team and build an infrastructure that should make yourself redundant at some point. And, um, once it got to critical mass, where it's now getting on average a thousand students, there's over 35 companies. You know, there, there were there was enough talent within the the company or within the social enterprise to run the events. Um, and you know, there was no need without, for you to do that front front role anymore. Not, not really. You know, you become more of um, I, I'd say more of an ambassador or a uh, or the or the or the face of the organisation. But you know, in terms of actually doing it, you need to also recognise that you need to give people the opportunity there to to also run it because that's what leadership's about it's about empowerment and it's about ensuring that you give opportunity for others to to help drive that and probably also more importantly and candidly because as it grows you may want different thoughts and uh, and aspects around it so um i i took the decision to then step down from the um the organization uh, about a year ago and um pursue uh, my second social enterprise which um is more um, around how we take some of the learnings from what your future ambition delivers yeah. and do that in a more mobile way. So my, my second social enterprise, which I'm involved in now and founded, is called Aspire to Achieve. Yeah. Um, and um, the, the concept behind it is very simple, in that we are purchasing or have purchased um, uh, buses. These are like London buses, which yeah. we're having converted into mobile science and technology classrooms. And then wow. these buses will tour around um, different cities, um, parking in the playground of a school and then allowing those companies to be on the bus to then deliver small 30-minute classes to young people to get them inspired, excited and engaged in um, science and technology. And uh, then the bus will yeah, that's so inspiring. So is that just in London or do you go outside London? Because I haven't seen anything outside, you know. Well, you won't see anything in London. And that's one of the things as the, the, the launch of the, the first buses won't be till February next year. Oh, okay. um, and they are deliberately not in London to start with. The idea is um, and one of the feedbacks I took when I um, when I stepped down from your future ambition is that everybody loved what it does and what it stands for. But you know, in terms of doing it in other cities in London, like Liverpool or Manchester or Newcastle or Leeds, uh, there was less of that. And it was impractical to expect a school to send, you know, their classes to an event in London because it would take them half the day to get there. So, you know, it was making sure that, you know, talent isn't just in London or in the south of, uh, of England, it's all over the UK. We need to tap and leverage that um that talent by ensuring that these opportunities and accessibility is given. So the whole aspect around Aspire to Achieve is to have these STEM buses, as we call them, that will be um, around. And my dream, to be honest, Tutu, is to have one 
one bus in every major city in the UK. Um, that's the think, first yeah. part. I think B Birmingham should be on your list. <laughs> yeah, Birmingham is on our list uh, as well, so we will definitely won't miss out the West Midlands. Um, and, you know, on a broader global scale, because I am looking like this, um, my dream is to then have maybe not London double-decker buses, but maybe minibuses doing something similar in other parts of the world, like especially in Africa, which I'm very passionate about. So, you know, I'm hoping when we've proven what we're doing here, Mm -hmm. um, I'll be able to leverage my network in Africa to get this up and running there as well, but probably on a smaller scale, mm -hmm. either on a coach or on a, on a minibus, which can do a similar job with companies going out doing the outreach. So that's kind of the, the bigger, longer-term plan. I know. Yeah, that would really go a long way in Africa because I think with Africa, technology is gradually growing there, so it would really be a huge impact if that can be done there as well. So It, you know, it will be. Yeah. And I, and I think just to add, and, and outside of the social enterprises, um, as you say, you asked, I do a few things. I think the rest of my time outside of work, and there are three things I'm passionate about um, to do. Um, it's science and technology. It's diversity, mm -hmm. generally, and yeah. workplace, and also social mobility. And um, what I've done with those passions is that I've funneled my energy, my resources, and my finances into my charitable trust, which is the Alasia Charitable Trust. Yeah. Uh, and that was set up a few years ago to be able to support and provide impact donations and bursaries to students to study science and tech, but other subjects, you know, but predominantly females, but also uh, males as well. Um, and, you know, it covers everything from providing bursaries for students to study from less advantaged uh, backgrounds right the way through to in fact last night um the alasia trust is a sponsor of the precious awards which were set up and founded by an amazing woman yeah. uh Lose, who um started these 12 years ago which is to celebrate and provide a platform for women of color uh, yeah. in this country to to be recognized and and you know i'm very proud that the the alicia trust as a sponsor has been for the last two years of, of those awards and um i you know presented the women and the outstanding woman in stem award last night as part of my uh wow. my responsibility so we do a whole range of things we have around five or six women um black women uh, many of african descent who we have provided bursaries to go to university this year for wow. three of those women are Three of those women are actually in Oxford. So wow. we've done quite a lot that's um, in terms impressive. of health. So that, that's what we, we do. So that's probably where I spend my the rest of my time outside of work. And, the, and, and they align very much to the things I'm passionate about. So we've just really put more effort into doing that. Um, and I have a small um, group of trustees that help us decide, you know, what causes we'd like to support mm -hmm. and what we do. And the, the trust itself, and, you know, for those of you... Uh, that will be listening to this podcast. Elasia is a town in Nigeria. Um, it's where my both my parents came from. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the trust was really set up in their memory. So, wow. you know, I was uh, less fortunate in both my parents um, uh, passed away in this country many years ago. So um, I lost my father when I was two and I lost my mother when I was 11. So, you know, okay. this trust is as much to ensure that their memory and legacy continues because they were both very, very giving people mm -hmm. that gave a lot of time and their, you know, and their efforts to help and support others. 
Wow, wow. That's that's quite so impressive. So for the Leisure Trust, if people wanted to apply, you know, uh, what what is the process like? So in case people listen to this and just want to know how to get involved, what is the process? Well, it's very simple. Um, there's a website. So there's a, certainly the social media platforms. If they just tap in Elisha Trust, they can follow the um, the actual uh, the trust itself and the people we're supporting and the things that we do. <clears throat> but more importantly, there's a website www.elisha.com. So very straightforward and simple. Mm-hmm. And uh, on there, there is the information that they can fill in. Typically, what happens is that. There is a form that they must fill in, which gives the details of the case and why they need support. Uh, the bursaries typically range from between 500 and 1500 pounds each for each student mm-hmm. um, that's available. Um, when they fill all their details in, those are then reviewed on a periodic basis um, by um, the trustees and myself. And then we decide based on our funds, and I, I fund my trust solely from my own income, um, then we make, um, you know, we make those donations um, and, um, and those, um, those supports or contributions uh, on, a, on a periodic basis based on that. So that's how we do it. It's quite structured. <clears throat> um, and we try and get back to students as quickly as possible. I'd say we tend to have busy periods, um, maybe around uh, typically the summer when yeah. students are getting ready to university or in September, college yeah. or in September and then sometimes we get um, ad hoc requests during the year um, so we we try and accommodate that so at the moment currently um, the trust um, I would say is that you know the, the trust is almost closed because we've given out all the money that we have mm-hmm. um, and then we'll probably start again next year when we build up the fund again and um, people often ask as well you know how big's the trust and, and what I do is essentially like many uh, senior people, as that I sit on a number of boards as a non-exec director. So I've elected to have my salary from those uh, organisations paid directly in the trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm quite fortunate that I do get asked from time to time to um, do paid speaking engagements when I have the time. Yeah. So all of them from my paid um, speaking engagements goes Just into, go the, into trust. the trust. That's so impressive. And then and then I take a small percentage, I would say, but it's probably significant of my bonuses from my regular day job, um, just in the same way some people um, make their tithes, as many of us do to church, if we do, mm. we're Christians. But, but um, I also take a percentage of my um, my income and I put that into the trust. So we end up with a hopefully a bit of money mm-hmm. and then we a bunch of trustees how we should spend that money to have the best impact in uh, causes that are around social mobility, diversity, and science and tech. Yeah, that is so impressive. I'm I'm so you know inspired by all this. I didn't even have um this much information. I just knew there was something you did about um Elisha Trust, but I didn't know it was quite in depth. And also the the passion and the reason behind why you started this is um quite inspiring and um impressive. Thank you. Yeah, you know you you can talk about these things or you do something. And I think with the trust. We're just a small privately held, you know, family trust. And and I just want to do my little bit for people. You know, we're not a very big foundation with an infinite amount of money. But, you know, we, you know, what we do is we try and have an impact on what we do have. And, um, yeah, we don't go around advertising, but we just ensure that there's 
people that are here of the trust and want to know more, they can go to the website or our social media platforms. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, if people apply and they're interested, then if we can help them, we can. And, and that's what we try and do. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. So just quickly back to you, the, your future, your ambition, you did say um, there was a next one going on next month. Is that right? Yes, I believe there's one that will be taking place in uh, October. And if people are interested, um, they can go to the website, which is www.yfya.co.uk. So your future, your ambition, but the acronym yfya.co.uk and all the details there um, um, will allow people to find out how um, they can either sign up um, both either as a company that wants to participate because there are I believe um, packages available for companies to do that um, but also if they want to um, send students or young people or or um, graduates or people that are still in university at the moment so I think the date for this year is the 17th of October um, is the date that the, uh, the event is taking place. But all the details are on the website. Okay. So okay. please go there for those that are interested. Okay, cool. Um, that's nice. Thank you for listening to part one of the Africa Emerging podcast with our guest on the show. I hope you enjoyed the show like I did. The concluding part of this conversation will be available in the next two weeks. Watch out. Please like Africa Emerging on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe and download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and Overcast. Like, share and review. Your feedback is extremely important to me. It will help me improve content provided on the show. Thank you for listening to the show. Spread the word on how Africans are changing the world. It's time to build the African continent. Subscribe to our newsletter on africaemerging.com.